the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just have to say that if I stumble over my words this morning, I promise you it's not because I don't know what I'm doing. It's because on the front row there is a dinosaur in a Santa Claus hat staring directly at me. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go talk to Drew Shores. It's a little frightening, the jaws of death. Thank you, Drew, for reminding us of the reason for the season. Okay, now on to the sermon. We have only four weeks in Advent, and for two of those weeks, half of the time, the lectionary passages turn our attention to this very strange figure of John the Baptist. We heard last week from the beginning of Mark's Gospel about John, and this week we hear from the beginning of the Gospel of John. I should say real quick, too, that if you're new to reading the Bible, John the Evangelist, the author of the Gospel of John, and John the Baptist are not the same John. You might think they are because we say the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John, and then we say there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not the same John. I know, it's confusing. But today we're talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist who appears in all four of the gospels. We're given a relatively large amount of information about him especially because the story of his birth figures very heavily in the beginning of the gospel according to Luke. There we learn that John is the cousin of Jesus, that he is conceived according to the plan of God, even though his mother Elizabeth and father, the priest Zechariah, were, as our very nice English translations say, advanced in years. I have to admit that I've always felt a certain fondness for John the Baptist. His character hardly needs any filling out by the imagination of the preacher because he is just so gaunt, so unruly, so irreducibly strange and out of sync with the time in which he was alive. We need to keep in mind that John is, after all, the son of a priest. He fills out the typical rebellious PK mold very, very well. He is, we might even say, a little bit punk rock. Meant to wear priestly vestments in the temple before the altar of God. Instead, he wears camel's hair 
in the wilderness. Not like the $1,500 jacket from Brooks Brothers camel's hair, but real camel's hair. He's not much of the hygiene type. He makes his protein shakes with insects. Unruly hair, out of control, so out of control that the line between man and beast begins to blur. If there are any children of priests in the room, I hope you're taking notes. We have great expectations for each of you. Yet the thing that that I love most about John is not that he's a contrarian. It is that his message is so very simple. So simple. Prepare the way of the Lord. His message is simple, but it is not easy. Prepare the way of the Lord. What John is saying is, we don't go to God, but God comes to us. God is coming right now. He's on his way here as we speak. And when God comes, that means that it's time to get up and to clean house. And I don't just mean like spray some Febreze in the bathroom, but like really, really clean the house. Do all the kind of cleaning that you would not otherwise do. John's message is repent, be baptized, for God is coming even as we speak. This simple message, a message of sin and forgiveness, is apparently one that struck a chord with a lot of people in John's time. It should give us pause, I think, that John's message that is so harsh to our modern ears, so brazen um, in its message of sin and forgiveness, John's message attracted, the gospel tells us, people from all Jerusalem and all Judea to the whole region of the Jordan. John understands both the worthiness and the seriousness of what he has to say, and so do the people to whom he preaches. We should think about that. So what are we supposed to imagine in the wilderness? How many people are out there? Are there hundreds? Are there thousands? Whatever the number, there were enough people in this unruly religious revival in the desert, enough people that the priests of Jerusalem, the people, remember, to whom John belongs by lineage, he is in the lineage of a priest, the priests of Jerusalem send some of their representatives out to check out this kind of charismatic revival that's happening in the desert. It's clear that there's all this expectation surrounding who John is. And that is why the priests asked him directly, who are you? Remember that these are probably not people to whom John was a complete stranger. They know, they probably know that he is John, the son of the priest Zechariah. And yet they still ask him, who are you? It's a loaded question. It's a loaded question because who are you is a substitute for are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ for whom Israel has waited for hundreds of years? And John answers in his typical direct way, a way that often gets him in trouble and leads to his death. 
No. No. So they ask a second question. Well, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? That's kind of a weird question, right? Elijah lived hundreds of years earlier, after all. Well, it's actually not that outrageous because at the end of, uh, of, of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi foretold that the Messiah would come at a great and terrible day of the Lord, but before he came, God would send his prophet Elijah back to us. So is this John? Are you Elijah? No. No, I'm not Elijah. And I think the third response, the third response is the biggest head-scratcher. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not, John says, I'm not even a prophet. The text hammers this point home for us, that John is denying all of these roles, right? He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, but he was not the light. And John says, I confess, I do not deny, but I confess that I am not the Messiah. You see the unnecessary emphasis in what he says, right? I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I am not even a prophet, a great religious leader, though I might be. But what does John say? Who is he? We should know that, that, um, that this doesn't mean that John wasn't some sort of great religious leader. In fact, Jesus himself says that there was never anyone uh, greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. With that in mind, how tempting would it have been for him to say, yes, I am. I know a few clergy who might be tempted to say that. None of whom work here, of course. I, I, I'm not saying that. Just, it's, I promise. Uh, all that to say that it's, it's a real temptation for religious leaders, for clergy, to, to adopt that sort of mindset. But John says, no, I am not that. But what does he say? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I am the voice. We should think about that for a moment. The image, this image of the voice, John as the voice, comes in John chapter 1. And if you remember, at the very, very beginning of John chapter 1, what do we hear about? We hear about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word, but John is the voice. What is it that a voice does? A voice channels. It articulates. It gives shape to, and it points us towards a word. A voice is not a word, right? But a voice without a word is unintelligible. In every sense, 
A voice depends upon a word for saying anything at all. I am the voice, John says, but I am the voice of another. John is the voice of the word who cries out, the same word who has become flesh and dwelt among us. That is to say, John is absolutely nothing without the one to whom his voice bears witness. He looks to another, great though he may be. And John goes even further. He says that this baptism that I'm doing, it's absolutely nothing compared to the one who is to come, the one who stands among you, yet you do not know. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. What is he saying when he says that? He's saying that everything that I do or say, everything, everything is in anticipation of the one who was before me in the bosom of God and who will come after me. He is saying, great as though I might be, I am not worthy to be his low-level slave. Who is the one to whom John witnesses. He is not just one more prophet. He is the one about whom all the law and the prophets are written. He is not just one more priest leading us in the worship of the temple. He is the one worshipped in the temple. He is our great high priest. He is, as John says in the verse immediately after our passage ends, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Like John, you and I are unworthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. As strange, as eccentric, as punk rock as John might be, we are called to echo him. Our voice are to become voices of the voice of the Word of God who visits us in humility. You might be familiar with what I think is one of the greatest depictions in Western Christianity of uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. and this, That's on the Eisenheim altarpiece uh, by Matthias Grunewald. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to go home and to look it up. And the thing that's really striking about this piece is not only the, the, the sort of violence that it depicts about the death of Jesus, but on one side of Jesus stands John the Baptist, which is an anachronism because John was dead by the time that Jesus was, uh, was crucified. But that's not the point. This piece depicts John, and what is he doing? He's standing He's looking up at the crucified Christ, and he is just pointing up to him like this. Who is John? John is one whose whole being has become transparent to the mystery of Christ, whose whole being is to point us to the mystery of who he is. In Advent, you and I stand shoulder to shoulder with John the Baptist, pointing to the Lord who is to come. And this means that great though I might be, 
Even when I bring everything that I have to the table, all of my accomplishments and worthiness, even if we incite a religious revival, even when I am at my greatest, everything that I do or say is to point to another. I am not the light, but a witness to the light. I am not the Messiah, but a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Friends, we look to the one whose sandal strap we are not worthy to untie. And this is very, very good news. It is good news because of the word from the prophet Isaiah that we heard in our Old Testament reading. It is good news because this same one whose sandal strap we are not worthy to untie is Jesus. It's good news for you because you who are oppressed, Jesus is bringing freedom. For you who are mourning, and I know there are many of you who are mourning this morning, Jesus is bringing comfort. For you who are brokenhearted, Jesus is the one that will bind up the wounds and heal, even as we look for artificial substitutes for life. There is one true life, our Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in your darkness to illumine the way. I am not the light but a witness to the light. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.